I would invite you to open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. It's always good to have it in front of you. We're going to be in verses 18 on out, and then verse uh, chapter 3, 1 through 6. Um, this morning we're going to be looking at the next two churches in these, uh, out of the seven churches found in Revelation 1, 2, and 3, uh, these letters. So we're just going to call them churches 4 and 5. Uh, two weeks ago, we looked at the letters to the first three churches of the seven in the Roman provinces of Asia, Ephesus, Smyrna, and Pergamum. And this morning, uh, we are just going to look at Thyatira and Sardis, those two letters. And then next week, Philadelphia and Laodicea. And in each of these letters, we see this phrase from Jesus um, at the beginning of each letter. And it's, it's Jesus saying these two words, I no, I know. For Ephesus, Jesus knew uh, what they really loved. That they had lost. He says that you you lost you know, the, the love you once had for me. They had fallen away from loving Jesus. For Smyrna, Jesus empathetically comes to them and says, "I I know your sufferings. I I know your persecution. I know what you're enduring for my sake." Christians in Smyrna continue to endure. Um, and then for Pergamum, Jesus says, I, I know really what you believe, Pergamum. Their, their theology was, was a bit wonky and was, was beginning to accept some, some teachings from pagan or just pagan means just non-Christian um, influences. And so he comes in and says, Pergamum, I, I know that your theology is kind of being uh, affected here by some of the teachings of the day, and so he goes on to, to correct them. And so these letters are really just letters, uh, gracious letters of God from, from Jesus, cor cor commending but also correcting in certain areas. And the same is true this morning for Thyatira and for Sardis. For Thyatira, <clears throat> the first letter, I know what you are willing to accept, Jesus says, that is simply unacceptable to me. Okay, that's the first letter that we're going to look at. Let me read it for us. <clears throat> it's going to be Revelation 1, starting uh, chapter 2, starting in verse 18. And to the angel of the church of Thyatira writes, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance. And that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent. She refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, this is like the uh, tough scripture moment. Behold, I will throw her under a sickbed. Those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, 
I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Wow, there's a lot there. There's a lot there. Let's kind of move through it. Uh, for Thyatira, he gives the good news and then the bad news. Let's go to the bad news first and then circle back to the good news. The, the picture we're given here is one of Jesus with, with eyes like flames of fire and whose feet are bronze. Um, his, his fiery eyes would, would indicate his holiness, that, that he is only capable to look upon and to deal in the arena of holiness, church. As R.C. Sproul writes in his classic book, The Holiness of God, which was a transformational book for me in my college years, he writes these words, The idea of holiness is so central to the biblical teaching that it is said of God, holy is his name. His name is holy because he is holy. But consider this. That, that he knows the world's holiness standards are low and how as a result we implode when we tolerate ungodliness and that then he would interject himself to rescue us from these self-inflicted wounds. That's grace. The gracious posture of Jesus is always, it's okay to not be okay, it's just not okay to stay there. And so for the church in Thyatira, they, they, they seem to be on track in so many ways. But he goes on to say, but I have this against you. You're tolerating Jezebel. Okay, pause. Who, who is Jezebel? What has she done wrong? We're given some information here. Before we ask who Jezebel is, though, which we'll get to, let's ask this. Why does God seem to be so concerned with behavior? You ever thought about that? God often addresses how we live. What we do, our decisions, our spending, our, our, our sexual preferences and activities. This, this book here, if we're to be honest, is full of, of a lot of what seems to be kind of be behavior addressing. How we live. The Bible is full of direction and wisdom related to our behaviors. And often we say the gospel is not about behavior. We say things like, it's not about do, it's about done. And God accepts you just as you are, which explained in context, yes, can make complete sense. But the whole life of the Christ follower is this word called sanctification, which means that we are being sanctified by the power of the Holy Spirit more and more into the likeness of God. Uh, as you, you, Eugene Peterson, uh, who wrote um, the, uh, what's it called? The message, thank you. I was going to say the way. He wrote uh, the, the Bible paraphrase, translation, whatever you want to call it. There's a big debate about it. Uh, it's called the message. He, 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 writes, he, he writes these words in, in that Bible. 
kind of. Um, <clears throat> he writes, it's a long obedience in the same direction. That's, our, that's the, the life of a Christian. What's the direction? It's, it's, it's in the direction of Jesus. A long obedience in the same direction. And so while the gospel of grace is free, the call that Christ gives us once received, Christian, is to take up your cross and to follow him, to die to self, to deny self, according to Matthew 16. It's a high calling. And to take the question about behavior a step further, would it not be unloving for him to not be concerned with our behavior? The, the correction and discipline that you give your own kids when done with a posture of grace, sharp at times and painful to enforce. Trust me, every day I find myself in this position. Is not only loving, but oftentimes it's life-saving. Could you imagine on a basic level for me as a parent not st stopping my child from crossing the road in front of a car? correcting their direction, or jumping into the pool without floaties. I was going to make a joke about Tyson needing floaties still, but he's not in here. So um, Noah still loves floaties. Yeah, no, I'm kidding, babe. The grace of God, not the wrath of God, is waving red and yellow flags in your face going, whoa, whoa, whoa. If you choose this path, it will be painful. It will harm you. It will be destructive to you. The unloving wrath of God would be to allow us to sit in and accept that which is unhelpful, painful, dangerous, and destructive. That would be the wrath of God, to allow you to stay in your destructive behaviors. Think about it. What a grace when God in his mercy comes and identifies a cancer in your life, precisely names it and surgically removes it knowing that it would love to metastasize and to take you out altogether. The grace of God is when he comes in and identifies it and surgically removes it. And so what's the cancer here? I can tell you this, the cancer is not Jezebel. It's not Jezebel. Jezebel is a woman made in the image of God just like you and I, she's a sinner in need of saving, just like you and I. The woman Jezebel is helping spread the cancer, but the cancer itself is idolatry that lives in the heart of every human who has ever lived. All fall short of the glory of God and have sinned. It's the idea that we would create for ourselves our own definitions of what is good and good for us and then choose to live in such a way that feeds and worships that idol. For whatever was happening here in Thyatira, some of it, a lot of it, seemed to have to do with a woman named Jezebel who was seducing them into sexual immorality. Now, Jezebel herself, it's debated whether an actual woman existed in their context or if maybe this Jezebel is just symbolic of the Jezebel who married King Ahab and ruled Israel and was brutal to her people. Regardless, the picture is that she is a perpetrator of the cancer, but the cancer itself is idolatry and has been since the Garden of Eden. It can all be traced back. God gives us everything 
and goes, there's a fruit that you must avoid. And immediately we go, wait, what? There's something we should avoid? Tell me more. We didn't make it three chapters into this entire book without falling into idolatry. And the same is true for any act of sexual immorality. It's rooted in seeking joy, satisfaction, happiness, acceptance, you name it, in something other than God. And so Jesus, in his wisdom, goes, hey, Thyatira, um, you guys are doing great. In a lot of ways, your love and your faith and your service and your endurance is killing it. You're doing great. You're spot on. But be careful to not become seduced by hedonistic immorality. It's rampant, and it will consume you, and you will not flourish as my kids if you succumb to it. That's not wrath, that's mercy. That's gracious warning from a loving father. Statistically, many in this room have been affected by this very topic. For some, you've been sinned against. For others, you've sinned, maybe both. Maybe addictions in this area. God, in his mercy, it tells us, gives Jezebel time to heal, to see her sin, and to repent. She does not. And you can see the language used towards her is strong. Because he knows its power to destroy her and to destroy others. I love this idea of being compelled by Christ, of being compelled by Christ. <clears throat> that as Christian, as you see him and know him more, you know, I've said this in recent months and years several times to different small groups, and I, I love Jesus now more than I probably ever have. I appreciate the relationship I have with him more than I ever have. And I truly want to be compelled in, in, see, in, in seeing him and who he is and his glory and the life he lived and, and, and to go after that hard, unashamedly, to be compelled by Christ. And so I actually see three movements in this letter where we are to be compelled by Christ. We are to be compelled by the holiness of Christ to flee from sexual sin. Okay, that's the first movement. We are to be compelled by the truth of Christ to actively stand against sexual sin. I actually follow several people, even on Instagram, whose their, their, their objective is at a governmental, political level to destroy the porn industry. And it's powerful to watch the work they're doing in this area. We're compelled by the truth of Christ to actively stand against sexual sin. Uh, the language used with the church in Thyatira was, was not learning the deep things of Satan. So we are to stand against sexual sin. And then lastly, compelled by the love of Christ to bear the burdens of those fighting sexual sin. Those who know Jesus and have experienced freedom in this area are not to abandon those who are fighting this currently. Paul writes in Galatians 6.2, to bear one another's burdens. 
And that is what we are called to do because we are compelled by the love of Christ. Towards the end of his letter in verse 24, there's a shift back to those who have not fallen into sexual immorality. And he actually says, uh, don't be burdened. Don't be burdened. I don't want to burden you with anything else. Hold fast to what you have until I come. He then says in verse 28 that he will give them the morning star. What does that mean? In other other words, uh, hold fast to the truth of who you are, what you know to be true about me. And if you do, you will receive Christ and all the benefits that come with him. And there's a promise of receiving some sort of place of honor here. And that those who see their need for Jesus will, in verse 28, it says, they will receive the morning star. Do you know who the morning star is? It's Jesus himself. Christ is the morning star, Israel's ruler and rescuer. That you'll receive something far greater than the temporal satisfaction you receive from some act of sexual immorality. And so John's vision comes full circle back to really showing us what the human heart really wants and needs, church. Something that will last. Something that will last. Okay, next letter. Letter five of seven. Then to Sardis. Then to Sardis. I know your true spiritual state, Sardis. Let's read these six verses together, okay? Um, And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has, who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Here's what he says. He says, I know, again, I know, because he knows all things. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you, if you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Okay. Seven spirits of God here would um, be the idea that his presence is over all the seven churches. That's that imagery. Um, The seven stars represent the angels of the seven churches. Um, Sort of like angelic representations who give report to Jesus of the churches. It's the imagery we're given. Um, There's a picture here, if you notice it, of of Jesus being fully alive. Fully alive. He's awake. His seven spirits observing, watching. He's awake. He's aware of what is happening in his churches. Does that make sense? Stands in contrast to Sardis. That they're... They're dead. They're, they're not awake, okay? They were sleepy. They were bored. The Bible has a lot to say about the soul kind of waking up. Um, Isaiah 52.1. Awake, awake, clothe yourself in your strength, O Zion. Clothe yourself in your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. 
or Ephesians 5.14, awake sleeper, arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. So in Sardis, the church appeared to be doing well when in reality they were dead inside. That's the picture we're given here. That's the beef he has with them. That's the issue he takes with them. Right out of the gate, he says, I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. I see past the veneer of spiritual vibrancy that you appear to have. One way to think of this is to consider um, what appears to be happening um, versus what is really happening in someone's life. In recent years, there's been significant, <clears throat> there's been a, an increase, if you've noticed this, just in mental health awareness, which is, which is so important. That someone could appear to be joyful and flourishing when in reality they're really hurting inside. And the same goes for our spiritual condition. Um, that all of us at different times in our faith journey have barren and dry seasons. Tired, weary, wondering what the point is. Does all of this really even matter? Do I really believe all of this? And yet on the outside it appears as though they're doing really, really well. They're showing up every week and saying all the right things. Um, I've actually asked men and women <clears throat> in my 18 years of vocational ministry to, to teach classes in the church, uh, to, to lead youth group talks, uh, even to consider eldership, that they've, they've said yes to, only to find out later they had little to no real relationship with, with Jesus. They were, they were on spiritual life support or even, even dead. And you know what? What I grieved the most in thinking back over those relationships isn't that they were where they were, but rather that they didn't feel safe to say it in the church. If we can't be a church that is wide open to the sinner, not the recovered one, but the one in the thick of it, then we will never be a church that looks like Jesus. The posture of Jesus in Matthew 11, even after he rebukes cities that are imploding from their own destructive decisions, says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you, when you come to me, you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, we, we can't just move past this too quickly. There's more happening here than we probably realize. Because Jesus says in verse 5, he says, I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. This promise is also given in Matthew 10, 32, where he says, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my father. Okay, so let's connect some dots here briefly. The church in Sardis was, was dead. That's the language given. And as a result, they were avoiding confessing Jesus. Okay? So in other words, they, they, kept, they, they kept busy. They kept busy with, with all the church activities. 
um, but they weren't, they weren't talking about Jesus to anyone. Reasons for this would be many, but a few ideas that they just simply feared persecution because they knew it was happening in other regions of these Roman provinces. Lots of persecution. They feared it from Rome. They feared it from the Jews. There was a large Jewish contingency in Sardis who did not want anything to do with followers of the way. And so Jesus calls the church in Sardis to, he says, to remember what you have received and heard, which is the gospel. Would you just take a moment to remember, Sardis, what you have received and heard? The, the good news? The gospel means good news? Would you remember it? I think about with our kids, oftentimes, we, uh, we, we remind, and Noe, you, you probably could attest to this, that we say things over and over again, right? Yeah, and sometimes she'll be like, I know you've told me that. You've, you've told me that before. And we repeat it over and over and over again. Because we need, even when we don't think we need, we need to hear those reminders every single day. Things that are true about God. Things that are true about myself. And this is what Jesus is saying. Don't forget what you know to be true, Sardis. Wake up. With the church in Sardis, they had all the things happening, programs and activities and meetings and committees and teachings and studies and worship gatherings. And it actually says that people noticed. It says that you have a reputation, as the language used. You have a reputation for being alive, but you're dead. Reputation is a good thing. We certainly don't want the opposite, a bad reputation. But as uh, Nancy Guthrie who she, she wrote one of the commentaries I've been using for this teaching series, writes, it is possible to have a reputation for being spiritually alive when the reality of the condition of our souls is quite different. And again, we see Jesus calling out spiritual apathy. And instead of concluding that he's just so demanding and concerned with behavior modification, rather, in reality, we see it as a gracious warning to wake up. Sardis, you are on the brink of being spiritually comatose. And Jesus gives them the diagnosis. And then he also gives them the antidote. You know what it is? Here's your condition, spiritual apathy. Here's your treatment. Here's your prescription. Don't overthink it. Just get to work strengthening what remains, is what he says. Strengthen what remains. History writes that, this is a fascinating story, that at two different points in history, both when Cyrus the Persian and Antiochus took over the city of Sardis, they did so by walking straight up to the main gate as they were so confident that no guards would be present. They walked right in. Jesus says the same thing spiritually. Sardis, fortify yourself spiritually. You still have time to to protect yourselves, to wake up. You know what this tells me? It tells me that no matter how far gone or asleep or dead you think you are, there's still time to wake up. Something I often think about in 2022 is just church boredom. We're sleepy. We're sleepy. I was a leader at a mid-sized church in West County for 
seven years, and I saw person after person after person come into the church for a season and then disappear. It was like this revolving door. And we would spend staff meetings talking about retention and how do we, how do we keep people and what does this look like for us as a church? My conclusion to this day is not profound. It's real simple. It's boredom. It's boredom. We get bored. What was once exciting and new became routine and boring. This is the same for our spiritual condition, our faith in Jesus. We put so much pressure on our spiritual condition to be fireworks all the time. But in reality, it's supposed to be a strong foundation to stand on in all things. Not something primarily exciting, rather something strong. Strong enough to save the world. Paul actually says the gospel is the power for salvation. Not the exciting emotion of salvation. That's what we need most. And something I know, Christian, is this. The church has done a poor job creating space to confess our struggles, our apathy, our doubts. How am I supposed to admit the state of my spiritual condition when I'm feeling far from God? I fear judgment. I fear that no one will be able to understand or help me through this. It's one of the most claustrophobic, to be honest, it's one of the most claustrophobic aspects of being a, a pastor. How is an elder pastor supposed to confess his own brokenness or apathy or being weary or tired when we're supposed to be the ones calling the church to spiritual vibrancy and awakeness? No, I don't have any major issues in my heart to confess currently, but seasons of being spiritually dry And then getting up on stage, trying to call people out of that, that can be hard. That can be hard. So I want to take us, just as we wrap up, this is it, to the most, uh, in my opinion, helpful passage in all of Scripture that gives us the blueprint, the antidote for a a sleepy or dead heart. If this is you, this is where you need to go. Psalm 63.1. I want to read it once um, in order, and then I want to read it backwards. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Let's read it backwards. We have a dry and weary land where there's no water. That's where I'm at. And I want my flesh to faint for you, and I want my soul to thirst for you. Oh God, I do believe you are my God. Earnestly. I'm going to seek you. That's the antidote. And Jeremiah 29, 13 promises this, that you will seek me and find me. And when you seek me with all your heart, you will find me. That's the promise. And so when we find ourselves feeling spiritually barren, this is my call to our church for the next 10 years. For the next 10 years. Let's not get go overboard for the next hundred, just let's go 10 years, 10 years. Let's just say this for the next 10 years at Christ Church, that we would be a people that would seek God, 
that we would seek him. That's not, gen- that's not just like this ethereal idea. You can seek him. And chances are, more often than not, when you're in those spiritually barren places, it's just the result of not seeking him because he promises when we seek him, we'll find him. That we would seek God, we would talk about God, we would open his word, we would sing about him, we would fellowship around him, we would pray to him, we would worship him, we would look for him working, we would notice and make comments about when we do see him working. We would not be ashamed of him. We would tell our neighbor about him. We would seek him. May we be awake, Christ Church, in in a world that seems so unbelievably apathetic and sleepy. That's, That's the city on a hill image that we're given as a church, a light that cannot be put out. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you for giving us your word. These are challenging passages as is um, really the rest of this book. There's a lot to work through. And yet we thank you for it. We believe it's profitable and good for us to move through. And so may we be a church that is awake, awake to your spirit and the spirit's movement in our, in, in our church and in our lives and our homes. Would you remind us of our position in Christ? We have nothing to prove, and yet at the same time, we have such an opportunity every single morning when we wake up to go, Lord, make me more and more and more into your likeness and image today that I may delight in you and increasingly become a city on a hill for the world to see. We pray all this in the name of Christ. Amen, amen, and amen.